this week about which direction he wanted me to go as far as sermons and so forth. The Lord put on my heart to teach this morning about gaining victory over doubt. Now I know all over the world people are doing Christmas messages and so am I. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. So we need to know how to conquer doubt because we're all faced with it. Different times, different measures and such. Mark chapter 11 verse 22 it says, And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now notice right in the middle of that verse, it says, and shall not doubt in his heart. Jesus is talking about obtaining miracles and miracle results by conquering doubt. Now, you know as well as I do that God wouldn't tell us to have something that we couldn't have. He would be unjust to do so. And so here where he says, have the... uh, Have faith in God. Literally it says have the faith of God. Brother Hagin coined the phrase. Have the God kind of faith. Well what other kind of faith would God have. Other than the God kind. So here where he says have faith in God. He's telling us to operate. And live our lives in a specific manner and method. That manner is faith. Paul talked about walking by faith and not by sight. We see over and over again in the scriptures examples, different examples of people that were robbed of the blessings of God by yielding to doubt, by not knowing what to do or how to conquer this thing called doubt. Now the word have is an interesting word. It uh, it seems simple enough, and I guess it is, but it literally means to hold. We talk about this word over in uh, Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the chapter where after Jesus is teaching the multitudes do, doing mighty works, signs and wonders and miracles then it says they were astonished at his doctrine. I think it's about verse 28 of Matthew 7. They were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one having faith and not as the scribes. But in the original Greek and you can find this out just looking at your Bible, the English Bible the word one is in italics which means it wasn't part of the original text. It's what the translators added to help us to understand or understand what they thought was correct. But it literally reads, they were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them as having faith. I'm sorry, as having authority and not as the scribes. So that phrase as having means how to hold. He taught them how to hold authority. Jesus It came as a real shock to me some years ago when I realized that Jesus didn't go around telling everybody he was the son of God. In fact, when he was challenged, he always answered that he was the son of man. There are 65 places in the four gospels where Jesus identifies himself. Over 60 of those, he identifies himself as the son of man. Three of them, he identifies himself as the son of God, and they're in the same context, the same setting. He identified with man when he was here on the earth doing the will of God, not identifying with God. He said God was his father. And he certainly identified that God was the source, the Holy Spirit was the source of the power that was made available to do 
signs, wonders, and miracles. He didn't claim that for himself. The Bible says that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory. But I think a lot of people seem to have the idea that God can just do anything and everything he wants to whenever he wants to do it. Brother Hagin made that statement some years ago in a meeting that he was holding in a church in Texas. And he said, now some people think that God can just do anything, anytime, any way, anyhow he wants to do it. And he said there was a fellow sitting on the second row, late 20s, early 30s. He said, well, bless God, I do. That's what, exactly what I believe. And Brother Hagin said the next thing he knew, the words were coming out of his mouth. He didn't know he was, it was him that was saying it at first. But the Holy Ghost gave him an answer. And so he said, if God can do anything he wants to do, why did he make you pay your tithes? Well, that fellow got down behind the pew trying to hide. But folks, there's a lot of applications to that. If God can do anything he wants to do whenever he wants to do it, why didn't he make everybody get saved? The Bible's clear about him saying, the Holy Ghost telling us that God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if God has control, if it's just up to him, why didn't he make everybody get saved? The Bible says God has exalted his word above his name. Psalm 138, verse 2, I believe it is, says that God has exalted his word above his name. So many times when people get hung up or, or focusing on the power of God, they're focusing on the wrong thing. It's not a matter of what God can do. It's a matter of what has he said that he will do. So here where the Bible says, where Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty two, have the faith of God. He's talking about a position. See, most people, it seems to me, you judge this for yourself, but it seems to me that most people think faith is something you get. But it's not. It's a position you hold. It's a position you hold. Now I'm going to draw your attention to another scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul speaking by the inspiration of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.13, he said, We having the same spirit of faith. According as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Folks, you see that word same? Seems like a little word. But the word same is used, uh, the word, the Greek word that's translated same here, is used over 3,300 times in the New Testament. It means self. It means self. So when the Holy Ghost is inspiring Paul to write, he's identifying the self of every one of us that are in the family of God in connection with the spirit of faith. That's the self who we are. That's the real us. We having the same spirit of faith. Same spirit of faith as who? As God himself. That's why Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty two. Have faith in God or have the God kind of faith, the faith of God. We've got the same spirit of faith as God himself who spoke the worlds into existence. Now, again, he, here Paul, uh, in, with, in a matter of confirmation, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Paul is confirming by the Holy Ghost what Jesus taught us about the principles of faith. Mark eleven twenty three, 23, as we read, comes down to believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. Paul says the same thing here in 2 Corinthians four thirteen. 
we having the same spirit of faith, that's the person on the inside, the one, the real us on the inside. We have the same spirit of faith as God. Even as God, it tells us in the scripture, we believed and therefore speak just like God did when he brought the world into existence. Now contrast that with 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Well, those all must be things connected with the spirit of faith then. As I said, we've got many examples in the Scripture of people that were held back and missed out on the promises of God because of their doubt and their unbelief. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 14. Let's look at one of those. Matthew chapter 14 tells us the story of when Jesus sent the disciples ahead of him and departed into a desert place or really up into the mountain to pray. It says in Matthew 14, beginning in verse 25, it says, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. That means the early morning hours. And when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Notice that Peter's walking on the water. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little doubt, I'm sorry, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? I was walking uh, around on the water in my pool last week (laughs) until the wind started to blow. That just ruined everything. (laughs) Folks, I want you to realize something. God's will was for Peter to walk on the water. I love the fact that it tells us about Peter. Peter was bold enough to challenge God to challenge him. Challenge Jesus, that is. He challenged Jesus to challenge him. And Jesus was fine with that. He didn't say to to Peter, you can't do this. Don't you realize I'm the son of God? The reason I'm able to do this is because I'm the son of God. And you're not, so you can't. But because he was operating on the earth as a man who was given authority over all the works of God's hands, he simply said to Peter, come. And Peter successfully walked on the water. But something changed. We know that the will of God must have been in this situation for Peter at his own request to walk out to Jesus and then walk back to the boat together. And certainly a miracle began just simply by Peter acting on what the Word of God says or what the Word of God was to him at that specific moment. Jesus just said, come. And Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus But when he saw the wind, when he saw the wind was boisterous. Now, folks, go back and read earlier in this chapter. You'll find out that the storm's been going on for some time. The storm didn't just come up when Peter got out of the boat. It was a mega storm, according to the Greek. A mega storm of wind. So the wind's been blowing like crazy. 
They were despairing of, their, of even being able to get to the other side like Jesus sent them. They weren't sure they were going to make it at all. So it wasn't a matter of the wind just coming up when Peter got out on the water. It's been blowing the whole time. Now, since Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus, to what degree did the wind have to do with anything concerning the miracle that was being experienced? Didn't stop him from walking on the water at the beginning, did it? But there's something we need to recognize about this natural life that we live, which is under the control of Satan to, a, to some degree, not to the complete uh, degree that he would want you to think. But certainly he does have opportunity to influence this world and things that go on in this world. This circumstance was designed to create exactly what it created in Peter, and that was fear. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink. That phrase has always tickled me. How do you begin to sink? If you step off the edge of your pool, you don't begin to sink. You drop like a rock. You sink. But it seems that his faith began to leave him by degree. It seems that the more he allowed the circumstances, the wind as specifically identified, the more he allowed the circumstances to affect him and create fear in his life or in his circumstance, then the lower and lower he dro dropped into the water. And he seems to be aware that he can't make the change or thinks that he can't make the change necessary to go back to the miracle that he was experiencing. So he cried out for the Lord to save him. Now we sometimes say that the problem was he got his eyes off of Jesus. And that's certainly true, but I don't think it's true in the way that we think. We think that he took his eyes off of Jesus, looking at Jesus with his physical eyes, what enabled him to walk on the water. And that's not the case. Peter could have closed his eyes and successfully walked in the water. Because we keep our eyes on Jesus as we keep our eyes on the Word. Jesus is the Word made flesh. So as long as Peter is doing, acting on the Word, or keeping his eyes on the Word, we use that phrase a lot of times to mean being a doer of the Word, act on what the Bible says. As long as he acted on what Jesus said, he could have closed his eyes and walked backwards to him if he wanted to. He stopped acting on the Word. Now, folks, I want to draw your attention to something. I want to go back to Mark chapter 11. I picked up the story in midstream, but now I want to read the whole story about this fig tree that Jesus cursed. I'm going to start in Mark 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 12. It says, and on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. He's walking from Bethany to Jerusalem and making a couple of trips. It's a short distance away. And so he's making a couple of trips in this two or three day period of time. On the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. 
Do you see that word answered? And Jesus answered and said unto it. Isn't that a strange way to speak about something Jesus said? When Jesus answered, it implies there's a question. But here's something we need to recognize about our circumstances. Our circumstances in this fallen physical realm are designed to influence. And in the case of the operation of our faith, to rob from us. They're designed to create doubt. And it's companion fear. Here this word answered literally means to conclude for oneself. To conclude for oneself. In other words, as we mentioned before, the condition of the fig tree, the unfruitful circumstance in Jesus' way, was a circumstance, an occurrence, that he has to conclude for himself, how am I going to handle this? So he curses the fig tree. No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. The circumstances you're in are designed by the devil to be used to affect adversely your faith. See, everything that happens to us happens for a reason. But that sounds like a religious phrase that everybody uses talking about God working things out. Some people, most people, it seems to me, that talk about everything happening for a reason are using as an excuse this thing called God's sovereignty to explain away everything that's taking place. Well, this tragedy happened, but God must have some purpose in it. Well, God does have a purpose in it. He's not the one that causes tragedy, but he does have a purpose concerning the tragedy that we experience. His purpose is for us to have victory over it. His purpose. He's not the one that brings tragedy, but when we find ourselves in a mess, in trouble, in affliction, hard places, tests, trials, and afflictions, those circumstances, those tragic circumstances are left to us to answer what are we going to do about this? Remember that was God's original plan. Genesis 1.26. God said let us make man in our own image. After our own likeness. And let him have dominion over the works of our hands. In other words God tells Adam. If something's out of place. Fix it. If something's not the way that it should be. Fix it. He didn't say come to me. What purpose would it be for man to have authority. If we go running to God for every little thing looking for him to do what he gave us authority to do. Now granted, there's a lot of times in Scripture that seem confusing to us and there's a lot of things that don't get done because we don't do them. See folks, God is very specific about the way he operates. You can just look at the laws of nature and figure that out. Gravity's not haphazard. It always works. And it has to always work. Now there are ways that you can supersede gravity. If that weren't the case, we wouldn't know anything about air, air travel. So there are things that you can do to supersede gravity, but even those things are covered by natural and physical laws. There are even laws about, the, well, there's something called the law of lift. 
that it's real important. Engineers have identified how planes need to be made and, and what form or shape and so forth that they should take. But the laws of God work just the way he intended for them to work. So when he put Adam in the middle of his creation and gave him authority, man was in charge. Now some people say, we talked about this some as well, some people say that when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, that they lost their place of authority. Well, that would mean that sin is greater than the will of God. God who never changes gave man authority on the earth. Well, if God never changed, then man still has authority. The devil's not big enough through his work to change what God has established. Now, it's not a matter of faith whether or not you have authority on the earth. That's an established fact. The Bible establishes that fact. Whether or not you use that authority is up to you. So we are, according to the, to the Bible, if words mean anything, according to the Bible, we are supposed to take the circumstances that we're in and to conclude what they mean. Now concerning the subject of healing, there's a lot of times, there was a situation just this week where somebody had been prayed for and then things started going wrong in their life. You ever been there? You get excited about hearing what the Bible says you can do and what belongs to you and what you can have. So you step out in faith. And you get excited about it. You feel like this is wonderful. This is great. Finally, I'm going to have victory over the devil. And then in the next seven days, your life comes apart. Different circumstances arise. In the case of healing, most often the circumstances of pain or a new diagnosis or some other physical condition, physical occurrence that takes place. And so I've had people all throughout the years that we've been here at the church, I've had people come after the fact, after they were prayed for, and then want to tell me what the doctor said, or it's a new thing that's taking place or some new pain that they've experienced. Well, you can tell by their questions. You can tell by the way that they're telling the story of their situation that they've concluded that these occurrences, these new things, this new pain, this new ache, they've concluded that it must mean that I'm not really healed. But why would a pain cause that? There are other areas in life that we believe God for. Finances are one thing, and provision are one thing that the Bible says Jesus paid for. At the same time, he paid for sin and sickness. And so if we're believing God for finances, let's say we need a certain amount of money to pay the bills that are, have come in, bills that we owe. And so we agree together in the name of Jesus based upon the word that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We agree together and say amen. And as far as we're concerned, that's it. But then if you wake up the next morning and have a pain in your body, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything according to what you're believing for. Having a pain in your body can't stop faith for provision or finances from working, can it? Well, if pain is not sufficient 
a not, not a good enough reason to change your faith or to change your position, your hold on faith for finances, then why would a pain in your body be sufficient to, to rob you from anything else that God had? God's the same whether you heard or not. And the word doesn't change according to circumstance. So when we see Peter here in Matthew chapter 14, when we see Peter walking on the water, experiencing the miracle, but then halfway through not coming to the end or the finish that was intended, we know specifically that something took him away from faith. Now notice the way Jesus said it again. In fact, let me just start reading again in verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, bid me come unto you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? What does the word wherefore mean? Well, I think most of us would just simply say it means why. And that certainly applies. It certainly would mean why, but it goes further in the Greek. It means something else. Wherefore is a, a combination of two Greek words. And it literally means to what did you doubt? In other words, it's, it's talking about the cause. For what reason, for what cause did you doubt? And folks, that's a great question. Because we all face the same situations. We all face the same or similar circumstances. We all face the storms of life. And Jesus is simply asking him, what was big enough to make you think you couldn't finish what you were already doing? What cause, what reason was great enough to negate the miracle that you were already experiencing? Well, it tells us right here what it was. He saw the wind and he began to get afraid. But why did he let the wind make him afraid? And folks, I'm not putting Peter down. I don't think we should criticize Peter until we walk as far as he walked. However far that is, I've got a ways to go. How about you? But Jesus is asking. Notice what he says. Oh, thou little faith. Wherefore did you doubt? For what cause? To what end did you doubt? What was big enough about the circumstance that you saw? This mega storm of wind that the Bible talks about. It must have been a big storm. Must have been something huge. The word mega in the, the Greek where it calls it a, a windstorm or a mega windstorm, it literally means super. In other words, this was not some ordinary thing. This was not some gentle breeze that was blowing. But he noticed the wind. Well, folks, he's already been aware of the wind. But there was something about this wind. Maybe it pushed a wave over him. 
Didn't say he wouldn't, that he didn't get wet. Walking on the water doesn't mean that he didn't get wet or splashed on by the waves. But something about these circumstances caused Peter to conclude for himself, I can't do this. Now look at how the devil works. He tells you you can't do what you're already doing. Because faith deals with the unseen realm a lot of times. People's faith is working toward the healing of their bodies. But they can't see any results yet, so the devil tries to tell them and tries to convince them that their faith must not be at work. They must not have made connection with God. They must not have prayed a prayer that God can or will answer when their faith is working all the time. I think it's going to be a sad thing when people get to heaven and realize that their refusal to believe or their refusal to hold fast to their believing robbed them of something that was just around the corner from being theirs. Now, folks, we see this over and over and over again through Scripture. We see in Mark chapter 6, actually Matthew 13. Well, we're right here in Matthew 14. Why don't you just go back with me a chapter to the end of chapter 13. And rather than just referring to it, I'll, I'll read some of it. Starting in verse 53, Matthew 13, 53, it said, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was coming to his own country, we know that was the city of Nazareth. Matthew gives us an account of this. Luke gives us an account of this in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel. And Mark chapter 6 gives us an account of it as well. John's the only one of the, the four gospel writers that doesn't include this story. And when he was coming into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? I want you to notice that they were amazed at his teaching even before any miracles had been done. Now, they've heard about miracles in other towns. Capernaum is specifically mentioned. But he doesn't do a miracle. They're not astonished at his doctrine because of a miracle that he performs. They're astonished at his doctrine because they've never heard anything like this. Well, if he's teaching anything similar to what we know of in Matthew chapter 7, he's teaching that man has authority. He's teaching about the place of authority that man's been given. Think about what that means, folks. That means Jesus is telling people, no matter what tragedies or afflictions or things that have come against you, you don't have to be run over by the devil anymore. They never did have to be run over by the devil, but they didn't know. That's got to be the thing that Jesus is teaching. Again, faith is not a thing that you get. It's a position you hold. Not just with God, but in the earth. So they were amazed and said, Whence has this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Apparently he had a pretty big family. Whence then has this man all these things? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. Notice the last verse, 58. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Luke tells us specifically what he taught. 
Luke 4, 18, when he was in Nazareth, his hometown, Luke's account of this same event or happening, he preaches that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to, rec- to preach recovering of sight to the blind, and so forth. He tells them that he's anointed or empowered by the Holy Ghost to heal the sick. But it says he was not able to do works, mighty works there. Many mighty works in Nazareth. Mark chapter 6 and verse 5 says it this way. It says, and he could there do no mighty works, save he laid his hands on a few sickly folks, folks with minor ailments, and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. So what does that mean? That means conclusively. We can say without any fear of contradiction that God wanted crippled people in Nazareth to be healed. He wanted the blind in Nazareth to be healed. He wanted the sick in Nazareth to be healed. He wanted all these people, deaf, dumb, whatever the affliction was, whatever the condition was, he wanted healing for all of those people, just like had happened in Capernaum. Just like the things that he's heard, that they have heard, the people of the city of Nazareth have heard about him in other places. God wanted those things to take place. Well, if God wanted them to take place, why didn't they take place? Again, the sovereignty of God side of the church would say whatever God wants, that's the way it's going to be. Well, the Bible says conclusively because of the anointing that was on Jesus, the reason that he was anointed, that's the reason he went to Nazareth in the first place is to heal the sick and bless everybody that he could. Why didn't it work there? Because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Now notice what they concluded. The people of Nazareth concluded that whatever they knew, whatever details they knew about Jesus and his life growing up there in the town of Nazareth, they certainly didn't know of any sin in his life or anything of that sort. But whatever they think they know about his his family life, they concluded that that was sufficient to not believe that he was able to heal. And the whole city missed out on the things that God had for them. That means people that were blind in Nazareth who should have been healed, could have been healed if they had only believed. That means whatever cripples there were in Nazareth that should have been healed, could have been healed if they'd believed. But it was unbelief on the part of the city. The whole town believed the same thing. That whatever they knew of Jesus' past disqualified him from being the healer in their midst. Now folks, you need to know something. And that is, if you hang around people that don't believe, they'll influence you and affect your faith. I've seen people receive their healing And lose it because they go back into the same church that they came out of. And rather than rejoicing over their healing. Rather than leading other people to want to know. What about this thing faith and how can we get God to do great things in our lives too. They go back into the same dead places. that say that stuff's not always of God. And they lose their healing. And invariably it's worse in the second measure than it ever was in the first. It's just the way it works. The devil always, it's a Bible principle, the devil always tries to go back into the place he left or cast out of. 
So if your faith runs him off in a certain area, don't be foolish enough to think that you'll, you'll never have to see him again. He will return. But that's nothing to be afraid of. You've already found in the first place that faith in God's word is more powerful than anything the devil can do. So you can run him off. You can maintain your healing. It's really not a hard thing to do at all. But their belief was affected. What they concluded by looking at the circumstances, weighing out the things that they've heard of, listening to the things that he says, they conclude for themselves as a whole city that no healing would take place in their midst. We see the same thing in the Old Testament when the 12 spies were sent into Canaan's land to spy out the land. All 12 of them saw the same things. They saw the same walls around the city of Jericho. They saw the same strength of their enemies, military might and so forth. They all saw the same thing, but they made different conclusions. Ten of them concluded that that the people, the enemies of Israel, were stronger than they were to the degree that not even God's help could put them over. Caleb and Joshua saw the same things and tried to quieten the people down and say, wait a minute, don't rebel against God. We can do this. God's already defeated the strongest army on the face of the earth, the nation state of of Egypt. What caused them to come to different conclusions? They waited out for themselves. Now where Caleb and Joshua are concerned, they weighed out the power of God, the power of the manifested presence of God according to the things that they saw come upon Egypt when the ten plagues were poured out upon them. The ten spies, however, that didn't seem to factor into their belief in any way whatsoever. They still concluded that they were grasshoppers in the sight of their enemies. But who were they in the sight of God? Caleb and Joshua said, we can do this. Yeah, there's walls around the city. Yeah, the military might of the people is great. So what? God's on our side. They've seen a pillar of fire over the tabernacle. They've seen the cloud that provides cooling shade for them in the daytime. They've seen some tremendous things. They saw the plagues in Egypt. They saw the Red Sea part. Now Moses parting the Red Sea is an interesting event because it's as if Moses finds out from the first time, for the first time, even though he's done miracles at the direction of God before, before Pharaoh, he seems to find out for the first time the position that God intended for him to have. They come to the Red Sea and the people start murmuring against Moses saying the Egyptians are going to come kill us here. This is a terrible military spot. Moses was most probably a military general or some kind of military officer before he left, killed the Egyptian and had to run for his life. And so he leads them into a place militarily that would be foolish to be in. So the people call out, talk about the terrible things that are going to happen to them. Moses says, be quiet. Let's just, everything's going to be all right. Just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Then he turns to God and says, what are we going to do? And God says, what are you asking me for? Now, for me, I just think that's the perfect place to ask God, what are we going to do? But God's trying to show Moses he has authority. 
So he says to Moses, stretch forth your rod and divide the sea. God doesn't say stretch forth your rod and I'll divide the sea. He says stretch forth your rod and divide the sea. He puts it over on Moses. Now, without question, the power of God worked. The power of God is what divided the sea. But God seems to be making a point. You're the one with authority. I gave you authority. You do something about this situation. And what did the people see? They saw Moses part the water. We know it was the hand of God at work, but Moses is the one that got credit for it. Because man has authority here on the earth. So when God asked, when Jesus asked Peter, to what did you doubt? Jesus is wanting to know, what made you think that the miracle working power of God couldn't continue to work? What did you think was more powerful than God himself who enabled you to experience this miracle of walking on the water? When they conclude for themselves that some circumstance, any circumstance, is greater than God's word. Let me close with this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Here's the story of when the father of the little boy that was possessed with the devil the evil spirit in him would sometimes throw him into the water to destroy his life or throw him into the fire. When he brings his son to Jesus, Jesus and his uh, three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, are not there. And so the others, the other disciples, who had been given authority in, to cast out devils and to heal every manner of sickness and disease, they start trying to help this father and deliver the little boy, and they weren't able to do it. Jesus comes, deals with the Father, has to get him over in faith a little bit. And he casts the devil out of this little boy. And then the disciples came to him later. Well, let's start reading in verse uh, 19, Matthew 17, 19. It says, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. Folks, unbelief is the only thing that ever stops the power of God. It's the only thing that ever stops the power of God. That's why Jesus said, if you believe, if you say to the mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. That's the only restriction he places on it. Because unbelief, doubt and unbelief are the only things that can possibly stop the power of God, the word of God's power from working. It's it. So Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now, folks, if that were true, if we really believe that were true, if you just accepted, if something happened to where all of a sudden, in a moment of time, you just became convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was true how would that change your life what would you do with that 
He's telling them the same thing he says in Mark chapter 11. Let me read it again. He answers this question. It didn't work because of unbelief. By the way, over in Mark chapter 6, verse 5 that we quoted a little bit ago, it says, and Jesus could there do no mighty work. It doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. If you look that up, you'll find out in the original Greek text, and it's translated this way in many other translations, the Spanish translation of the Bible, for example. It literally says he tried and failed. It literally says he tried and was unable to do any mighty works. Again, the English version is, and he could there do no mighty works. Well, you could well understand, knowing the, the uh, history of the church in America, you could well understand why the translators wouldn't translate it that way. There's no way in the world that they would ever think or accept that the Son of God tried to do something and was unable. But that's exactly what it says. He could there do no mighty work. He tried and failed. Well, you know that has to be true because he did get a little bit of results with people with just minor ailments. Well, if he's not trying, he's not even going to get them healed. But he wasn't able to get anybody healed with a major condition. No blind eyes were open. No deaf ears were open. No cripples were healed. He tried and failed. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now get that. Jesus marvels because of their unbelief. It's like he's saying, man, I can't believe this. I'm sure that's not what he said. But it's like you've got to be kidding. You refuse to let me bring the healing power of God to your people, to the ones that need it. He tried and failed. Did Jesus let that affect him like the disciples did? No, when the disciples tried and failed, they're all upset about it and saying, why did it fail? Jesus always knew. The only thing that can stop it is unbelief on the part of the individual. That's it. That's the only restriction there is. So again, back to Matthew chapter 17. Why couldn't we cast him out, the disciples asked. Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily, truly I say unto you. Truly I say unto you. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed. He's not talking about size. He's talking about what you do with seeds. Again, faith is not a thing that you get. It's a position you hold. It's the place you have with God. You have the same spirit of faith that God has himself. God recreated him and put his Holy Spirit in you. That is the spirit of God. That is the spirit of faith. You don't have a second-rate faith. You don't have a second-rate righteousness, which comes by faith. You've got exactly the same. When Jesus had offered himself unto spiritual death, we only see the part that happened on the cross. But after the cross, the Bible tells us Jesus paid the price for all of mankind's sins. That's why he was gone for three days before he was raised up again. And during the time that he's completely separated from God, remember on the cross, one of the last things he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's not talking about being forsaken because he's on the cross. Jesus agreed to that. Jesus allowed that. He sees that he's now been separated from God. You remember in, uh, uh, where the Bible says that darkness came upon the face of the earth and lasted for three hours? That was the process of Jesus being made spiritually dead. 
That was the process where the eternal life of God, the very life of his existence, was made to be death. Well, if Jesus died spiritually, and he had to, somebody had to die spiritually. The wages of sin is death, not physical death. If physical death was the wages of sin, then we could all die here on the earth and then go to heaven because we paid the price for ourselves. But it's not physical death that does it. It's spiritual death. Jesus had to pay the price for us who were dead spiritually. Dead in sins and trespasses, as Paul said. But if Jesus was dead, if Jesus was spiritually dead, separated from God in every respect whatsoever, so that the judgment of mankind could fall on him, which is what the Bible says took place, then for Jesus to be raised up, he's got to be born again. I know that doesn't sit well with some of our theological ideas. But for man's price to be paid for, man's sins to be paid for, for the death, spiritual death that came upon all men through Adam and Eve falling in the Garden of Eden, if Jesus paid that price, he had to become dead himself. He had to die spiritually. And if he died spiritually, then that means he's got to have some kind of life that recreates him or raises him up. The Bible says that was the Holy Ghost. So that means Jesus was literally what the Bible says, the first begotten or firstborn of many brethren. He's not talking about physical birth. Jesus was the first one born again. And you've got the same born again experience that he does. When Jesus was raised up from the dead, no wonder he appears to his disciples and he's happy. He was dead, but now he's alive and lives forevermore. Jesus gladly accepted his place at the right hand of the Father. Through his own works, through his own conquest of spiritual death. He didn't question whether or not he was worthy of the authority of all authority in heaven and earth. He just simply tells the disciples, I'm back. And I have all authority in heaven and earth. I'll take care of things in heaven. You take care of things here on the earth. How are we supposed to take care of things here on the earth? If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed. If you're willing to plant. Whatever belief you have in God's word. Concerning any subject. Any area that you're experiencing. Or that you're in the middle of. If you'll plant that as a seed. If you will plant that as a seed. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed. You shall say under this mountain, how do you plant seeds of God's word? By speaking to your problems. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say, under this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Nothing shall be impossible to you. Folks, if we believe that, we'd start working on certain areas of our lives. If we believe that, we'd start speaking to certain things that we're in the middle of. If we believe that, we'd start speaking to our bodies. We'd start speaking to our finances. We'd start speaking to our relationships. If we believe that, we'd change what we said. What if Jesus appeared right here in open vision for everybody to see and said, I have a word from God for you. 
from this moment forward, whatever you say will come to pass and then disappear. Would that affect the rest of your day? That's exactly what his words already said. It wouldn't be any more real for Jesus to appear here in an open vision. That's not what would make it true. What makes it true is that God has already said it. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, if you have faith that you're willing to plant, you will say to the mountain, the problem, the circumstance, the situation, you'll say to the mountain, be removed and cast into yonder place, and it shall obey you. And not only that, that's just a small thing, but nothing shall be impossible to you. Nothing shall be impossible to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for opening our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see who we are and what we have in you. We love you, Father, and we recognize that you've given us authority. Therefore, we exercise authority over our bodies. Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. So we declare our bodies are well. We speak to our finances. You said, Father that you would supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So we declare that all of our needs are met. We declare that our finances are abundant and overflowing so that we have not only enough money to pay for the things that we need, but money to give and be a blessing and help others. We speak peace into our lives because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. We speak forgiveness into our lives. We choose to forgive those that have done us wrong, Father. We refuse to hold it against them in Jesus' name. But instead, we ask, Father, that you would bless those that have wronged us. That you would show them the, your goodness, the fullness of your goodness and mercy. We thank you, Father that nothing shall be impossible to us because we have the same spirit of faith as you yourself. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for making it possible for us to enter into the family of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Let's just lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Thank you for how much he loves us. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We bless you, Lord Jesus, and we count on you, Holy Spirit, to guide us into the reality of healing, the reality of provision, reality of peace, the reality of God's will and his plan and his purpose in our lives. Nothing is more powerful than your word which is at work in us. We bless you, Lord. We bless you. Hallelujah. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come back and be with us tonight at 6 for Healing School if you can. You're dismissed.